0: Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLA podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: Professor, you mentioned earlier that Estonia has become a capital for, uh, for cybersecurity law. What happened in Estonia to prompt that?
0: You know, there's kind of these episodes of the law, and I think if Stuxnet was the wake-up call for kinetic effects and the potential for states to be able to use cyber means to do the sorts of things that they'd only been able to do through uses of armed force previously, Estonia was the wake-up call that the digital environment was going to be a zone of contestation for states. And what happened in Estonia in, in 2007 actually was maybe not unlike what we're seeing in, in parts of Europe right now. Was there was a petition to move a Soviet war memorial from the center of Tallinn, the capital of Estonia's central square? And there's a Russian minority in Estonia that protested that. The Russian government protested it. There were Russian patriots protested it. There were there was you know some violence in the streets and the like. And at the same time, as the Tallinn government was preparing to move the statue, Estonia was hit by a massive directed denial of service attack. It took government websites offline. It took banks offline. It took universities offline and disabled the government's ability to communicate for a couple of weeks period and the Estonian government accused Russia and said this was this was Russia doing it Russia of course denied and says you know uh, you know how cyberspace works and it could be anyone anonymity is the norm in cyberspace and so they refused to kind of help and Estonia turned to NATO and said hey is this an article 5 situation NATO the, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization has this famous provision article 5 of the treaty that an attack on one is an attack on all You know, for example, after September 11th, the U.S. invoked NATO Article 5. An attack on the United States was an attack on all NATO member states. And so that's how you had, you know, a coalition, for example, in Afghanistan of NATO members responding to the threat that al-Qaeda posed. And Estonia kind of raised that same question. And NATO came in and said, "Mm, this was, you know, disabled your websites. No deaths were traced. There was no physical destruction like we saw, say, with Stuxnet a few years later. Um, so we don't think this is an Article Five, but but boy, do we think this subject warrants study. And so the NATO actually set up a, what's called a center of excellence in Tallinn, um, and they host an annual conference there called CyCon uh, every year.
1: Are you an occasional speaker at CyCon?
0: Yeah, I've I've spoken there. Um, yeah, and and where militaries from around the world gather to think about like how does you know what would cyber warfare, what does it look like, what are the thresholds, what are the rules. And so I think, you know, Estonia in some ways was in 2007 was kind of the starting point where it became a topic for real global attention. And that's, you know, again, ties in with these stories where at the United Nations, you start to see states every couple of years getting a group of governmental experts together and trying to negotiate out reports or consensus norms that they could all agree on.
1: In Tallinn, that's where this Tallinn manual comes from?
0: So, yeah. So... This NATO center of excellence funded these independent group of experts, they were independent, NATO didn't exercise editorial control, but it funded this group of initially largely Western international lawyers and, and I think in the 2.0 version of a more globally representative grouping, who, you know, spent years kind of working through, okay, there's a prohibition on the use of force, what does that mean in cyberspace? There's a duty not to intervene in another state's internal affairs. What does that mean? Or what does that look like in cyberspace? And so they've come up with a fairly large book, several hundred pages. I, I probably could reach it if you want to see it. And, you know, I think it's become, in the absence of states being able to kind of agree in in the same level of detail, it's become a reference point to think about how does international law apply in this space. But it's not, it's not binding. It's not a treaty. It's not custom. But it is, I think, a sign of how much how important the issue is that we've had you know to devote so much study and attention to it.
1: You mentioned earlier the challenge of attribution with cyber. I want to talk about what happens when governments create some space between themselves and the cyber attack by perhaps outsourcing or perhaps one step further removed, just not enforcing uh, cyber crimes. And I wondered what you or what international law has to say about that.
0: Yeah, so I think this is an area where international law, from my own view, struggles. You know, as I mentioned earlier, it's one thing when the United States government creates its own, you know, cyber command and cyber forces alongside like Space Force, Cyber Force, Marines, Navy and the like. But, you know, I think that's not how many states have managed to build out their resources, either because they don't have the capacity to do so, or, you know, they, they want that maneuverability, that plausible deniability to have other actors as proxies. And so, I I think absolutely what we've seen is in the cyber context in particular, a lot of the bad activity obviously comes from cyber criminals. But then there's the question of when there's activity that might appear to be criminal but is in fact being controlled or at the direction of states. Even more broadly, as you alluded to, some states, Russia notably in this regard, have basically kind of green lighted cyber criminal activity as long as it's not done at home, right? Like, if you want to go go ahead and conduct ransomware operations against the US. We're not telling you what to do or when to do it, but we also won't prosecute you. And so I think there's a couple of different rules that international law has to to regulate um, this situation. One, international law, as I said, is, is the law about nation states. And so to apply the law, you've got to be able to attribute the bad activity, the unlawful activity to a state. And if it's done by an organ of the state or an agent of a state, then attribution is relatively easy. State activity, even you know, rogue state actors, if it's part of the state, the state's going to be responsible for what happens. Beyond that though, it's a question of, well, what about these non-state actors that may be doing something? And, and we have what's called kind of a control test in international law. If you're exercising what the International Court of Justice called effective control, directing the operations more than just merely providing funding, for example, but actually either providing the malware suites or pointing in the direction and saying go hit that target. It's not going to be enough to say, well we're not the state we're you know we're a private organization or private individuals. The state can be responsible where it's exercising effective control over these proxies. Coming out of the Balkan conflict, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia actually articulated something and said, well, Maybe it should be broader than effective control. What about when you are funding or training or kind of, you know, you're not directing particular, you know, operations, but overall, the overall mission and direction of the organization is under your control? What about an overall control test? And they they applied that to some of the crimes that were being committed in the Balkan context. The ICJ so far has said, no, no, we have this narrower, effective control is what's required. And I think the challenges in cyberspace is is really is that enough?
1: Yeah. How would that test be applied to an organization like so-called Cozy Bear in Russia?
0: Right. So I think it's one thing for me to describe it in the abstract, but then you're going to have to say, well, where's the funding come from? What communications were had with government officials? Were, Were the government officials doing the Gee, it would be sure bad if something happened to Colonial Pipeline, or it would be sure bad if something happened to the Democratic National Committee, or were they saying, hey, we'd really, you know, here's a range of targets we'd like you to consider hitting, or the like. And so, yeah, I mean, effective control is a high standard, and it's not enough to just fund the entity and may not even be enough to just provide them with quote unquote weapons. So, even if you're giving them the malware, you have to actually kind of control what they do with that money and with those weapons. And the same thing would hold. In the cyber context. And so, you know, we've seen a, I think, a growing sense of kind of disquiet with, well, do we really have sufficiently robust rules both for tying proxies to states? Like, what's the evidence that's going to be required? Because it's going to be hard to acquire. And how loose or close must the affiliation be? Because I think what we're seeing is that the Russian foreign ministry has good international lawyers, the Chinese foreign ministry has good international lawyers, so does the U.S right? And, and they know where these lines are, right? And they know what's been described as effective control in the past and what hasn't. And so I think you've seen a lot of cyber activity greenlighted that is designed to be proxy activity that just would fall short of state responsibility in many ways.
1: Interesting. Here's a $10 million a year budget. Here's some nice facilities. You know who are our friends, you know who are not our friends. Happy uh, hunting.
0: Yeah, that seems to be, that's the challenge, right? Like if you take the, this, this, a lot of this doctrine comes from the Nicaragua case, which was when Nicaragua sued the United States for U.S. support for the Contras in the 1980s. And although the court found the U.S. had violated international law in a number of respects, it also found that in certain ways there was not effective control over other operations. And so that's, you know, that challenge, the lines that were drawn for 1980s Cold War proxy conflicts in Central America, are they really up to task for dealing with the sorts of activity we're seeing in the, in the digital context, there is another side to this though, right? So I think what we've seen, particularly in the last couple of years, there's been some great work out of by some colleagues of mine at at Oxford on, on what we call due diligence, uh, which is to say, all right, if we can't trust states to not play games with their proxies, maybe we need to focus on the duties states have to assist victims to help stop cyber operations that are harmful to, and to mitigate them. And so, like, for example, I mentioned that Estonia case earlier, right? Estonia went to Russia and asked for help and Russia said, oh, it wasn't us. We're not going to help. But there's this kind of tradition in international law called the due diligence principle. It has different manifestations, but one of them is you're not, you know, states are not supposed to allow their territory to be used to breach the international legal rights of other states. And so if you're, you know, so even if you're not doing it, if your networks or your territory is the base for the operation that is violating another state's international legal rights, then you can be called on to do something about it.
1: Wasn't this part of the justification for the invasion of Afghanistan that while the government of Af- of Afghanistan wasn't complicit in the September 11th attacks, they weren't doing a good job of keeping al-Qaeda out?
0: We call that kind of the uh, unwilling or unable standard. If you're unwilling or unable to do something about the unlawful activity occurring in your territory, you know, other states can come in. There are a number of states who are a little worried that that how far does that go as a slippery slope. And so I think there's there's a division to make between what's the U.S. obligation to clean up its networks and are you doing enough? And you could just stop there and say like, hey, you have to do more versus a and if you don't do more, we can come in and do it for you. And so I think there's a lot more unanimity and a lot more consensus building around the idea that states have a legal obligation to kind of protect and respect the rights of the people in their territory and the ability of their territory not to be used to violate international law elsewhere. There's definitely much more controversy about whether the rationale that was used for Afghanistan, for example, would extend to cyber means. But you definitely have started to see it articulated when colonial pipeline, pipeline on the eastern seaboard, had to shut down. They didn't shut down because the ransomware targeted its operations. It shut down its IT system, which meant they couldn't invoice, they couldn't bill, they couldn't they couldn't do their business operations. But that shut the pipeline down. And to the extent that it's traced back not to the Russian government or not even to Russian proxies but to criminal actors in Russia, you know, there is that question of like going to Russia when Biden and Putin were speaking with each other, you know, there was the request of, "Hey, what are you going to do about this? Don't you have an obligation to do something about it?" I think the danger is a little bit Though the Ukraine crisis right part of the russian excuse for going in was that uh, it needed to protect and intervene because ukraine wasn't doing enough to respect the, the rights of russian minorities in the donbas region it was unwilling and unable to protect their rights against nazis all of which let's be clear is
1: you're you're not justifying the arguments I'm not
0: justifying i'm not right. suggesting that it, air, it bears any relationship to truth but that was the that was the logic of the argument the kind of the paper veil very thin that Russia tried to put on its invasion and so you know there's some concern about that logic being used for kind of those sorts of otherwise pretty unlawful purposes.
1: If one country turned off their power grid for 20 minutes and then blamed a neighbor as an excuse to go to war?
0: Right that's the other thing right like so the the other worry with a lot of this is what it, what about either the, the false flag operation or the operation where you're just trying to gather information on your adversary and it is harder, I think, in cyberspace to disguise yourself to make it look like a Middle East, you know, an Iranian operator that is in fact Russian or the like. That's not to say that that does, doesn't happen and in their efforts. French television TV, Monde, uh, Channel 5, was shut down at one point and purportedly by terrorists from the Middle East, but investigators were later able to kind of attribute it to, to the Russians. Similarly, we saw at the Olympics in Seoul, a similar effort. So there have been efforts to kind of false flag, and people are worried about it.
1: Interesting. So, Professor, as an expert, when I hear something like, you know, the government believes with 98% certainty that it was a North Korean attack or a Russian attack, that
0: level of confidence is accurate? So I think if we can step back a little bit, right? So what's interesting about cyberspace is, you know, although it was the internet was designed right to be a network that would survive a nuclear war right this was the the government's arpanet this is the government's arpanet so you know the internet had a security purpose but it wasn't designed with you know attribution in mind it wasn't designed to be able to identify who's doing the sending and the like and so the architecture kind of fundamentally allows for anonymity, it allows for actors to disguise the origins uh, to put in what we often call stepping stones, like to put in to route your operation through multiple dozens of pathways to make it really difficult to know kind of know who done it. And so for years, early on, there was this kind of thought that we're going to have to regulate cyberspace kind of like we regulate hurricanes, right? We can't regulate the bad actor. We can't stop the hurricane. We just have to improve our defenses. We have to work together. We have to cooperate. And I think for a while there was that thinking of like, it's really hard to know who the bad actors are. So let's let's really work on the defense side. Let's improve cybersecurity. I think in recent years, both through online technical tools, it's a cat and mouse game, but the attribution has gotten better. And today I would say, you know, there are a handful of states and a handful of big tech companies Uh, particularly cloud service providers who just have so much data, they see so much traffic, they can start to do pattern recognition. They can start to use machine learning, artificial intelligence to identify both similarities to past activities and start to make linkages that allow states to kind of start to say with greater confidence, yeah, this is Chinese in origin or this is Russian in origin or this is U.S. in origin.
1: So it's not like in the movies where they're sitting in a room and they're saying, I'm going to bounce this through through Belgium and then Bogota, Colombia, all the way to Beijing and then back through Connecticut and around the world so many times that no one will know.
0: I mean, that does happen. The last part, nobody will know, is what kind of been lost. I mean, there was a time, so there was this incident in the 1990s called Solar Sunrise. And it was actually while the U.S. was in a tiff with Saddam Hussein over the no-fly zone in Iraq, that was targeting the U.S. Defense Department. And the U.S. Defense Department was convinced that it had to be Iraqi or Iraqi sympathizers that were you know, launching this kind of operation that was degrading U.S. Defense Department services and was trying to exfiltrate information. And it turned out to be three teenagers, right? Two in California and one in Israel, right? I think that was definitely a last century sort of story. One, it's a lot harder for three teenagers to do the sorts of things online that, that were Possible a couple of decades ago. Now it requires more sophisticated actors to do more sophisticated things. I mean, obviously, teenagers can still do cybercrime, but not at the level that's going to get into the NSA or the CIA. And I think the other thing that's happened is, as I said, there's technical tools that are allowing better attribution. And let's also be clear, there's also other sources of intelligence. And so I think when you hear a government saying they're, they have high confidence that not Petya was, you know, was an operation, you know, uh, affiliated with the Russian government or WannaCry was affiliated with the North Korean government. That may be they did all the tracebacks and the forensics technically to see pattern recognitions and, you know, a Russian keyboard was used and these sorts of things, or we know who this hacker is and we we think they are, they're based in Moscow. Those sorts of things do happen, but also there's secondary intelligence. There's other you know, human intelligence on the ground, within the bureaucracies of some of these governments. There's other ways that then, when put together, I think can, can give governments a much better sense of, of who done it, And that's been borne out in over the last four or five years, where states have begun to call out other states. And to, to start to say, as I think President Obama did with the, the hack of Sony Pictures, you know, this was North Korea. That was one of the earlier times you had a state accusing another state of responsibility. And we've seen that now increasingly with you know, Russian interference in the 2016 election, allegations that China was responsible for various targeting of US industry uh, and the like. And so you're seeing more and more both individual states accusing other states of uh, cyber operations and what we might call collective accusations where a bunch of states get together and they kind of pile on. So you just kind of see not just one press release, but 15 press releases on the same day. to name and shame, if you will, these bad actors. And
1: another quick break for those listening for MC Lee credit. Here's the code, it is one nine one nine two two. Again, that's nineteen nineteen twenty two. And now back to the interview. One more area, I suppose, before before we let you go, that I'd love to get your your insights on, is another way that countries can meddle via the internet, and that's with influence operations. And I guess, first off, we're using the term influence operations. What does that entail?
0: So, you know, in the old days, we called these psychological operations, right? It was stems from like the old, like, you know, dropping pamphlets behind enemy lines and saying, you know, surrender, we, we know, you know, changing the hearts and minds of the population, as it were. And so the idea of an influence operation is you're not trying for a kinetic effect. You're not trying to break anything. You're basically trying to get into a, the mind of the audience. And that audience could be a general public, right? Like a voting populace. It could be the minds of certain key decision makers uh, in an industry or in a, in a government. And you're trying to either get them to change their mind or maybe to make their views even more strongly held, right? Like you're, you may be trying to you know create more dissension in a population. and. I think the challenge has been for so long in the cybersecurity context, people were so focused on the kind of that Stuxnet storyline and the the worry at the high end of, you know, some sort of catastrophic cyber attack that was going to cause physical harm or death or destruction. Many experts, I think, missed the ways in which perhaps equally significant kind of systemic outcomes could occur through death by a thousand cuts, if you will, through small movements where states secretly buy up social media identities, create false identities, and create networks where they spread disinformation, information that is false, that is designed to cause harm, with the hope that it'll become misinformation. That is information that you know I, for example, might distribute it, and I'm not trying to cause harm. I'm just trying to, I think it's fine, but in fact, it's wrong. And, you know, we saw that, I think, with respect to the 2016 election, where the Russian Internet Research Agency, this troll farm in St. Petersburg, you know, was able to leverage through actually relatively little resources in some ways. A large impact on various social media platforms, Facebook and the like, where real voters were interacting and not realizing they were interacting. They thought they were interacting with you know people from Pennsylvania or Texas, but they were actually inter- interacting with Russians who then prioritized certain storylines and certain narratives that would kind of exacerbate the polarization or exacerbate the strength of views people had in favor of one candidate or against another candidate. And so, you know, the concern has been, well, how do we regulate this? And that's only been compounded by COVID, right? I think so, you know, because we've also seen influence operations designed to question the efficacy of vaccines or to promote some miracle cure.
1: With foreign backing?
0: Yeah. So I think certain governments have been encouraging vaccine hesitancy abroad, but also at home. So, you know, a government can conduct an influence operation against its own people. And there are international law rules on both the foreign influence operation and the domestic one. Interesting. We haven't talked much, but there's international human rights. You know, you and I as individuals, we have a right to life, we have a right to health. And you know, and among other things, we have a right to information about health. And so if a government like say Brazil, or even in the US starts promoting cure that is not only not helpful, but might actually physically harm you, that government is not respecting your human rights. And isn't just violating maybe some domestic laws, but it might be violating international law as well. I think that you know, when it's a foreign government, you know, there's this duty of non-intervention. States are supposed to stay out of other states' internal affairs. And the challenge with that is we used to say, well, you're not supposed to get into another state's internal affairs to coerce them to do something. So you don't kind of get into another state and say, elect this person or we'll invade. That's an intervention that would be coercive, that would violate international law. The challenge for us as international lawyers is an influence operation is not designed to coerce. It's designed where you think you're making the decision on your own, that it's your own exercise of free will. That's the best influence operation. And so, you know, the challenge is how do we regulate what might otherwise just be free speech? And so there's a real, I think the international law right now is not up to the task. And I don't, it's going to be hard for it to be up to the task. I think that the best course of action may be not to limit the content of the speech, but the form, right? So no false, you know, governments shouldn't be able to pretend they're a non-governmental source, that you have to be identified as a governmental source when you speak. You can't pretend you're, you know, the grandmother from Des Moines or the like.
1: Well, unless you're going through some third-party contractor of whom you have, you don't have full control.
0: And so I think one of the other things what we're seeing with influence operations is, you know, is the answer international law or is the answer social media platforms need to be regulated in different ways or adjust their terms of service because i do you know i think there's a lot of criticism to be made of social media twitter and the like but you know they they do now have you know almost thousands of people whose job it is is to survey the content and decide what to take down and what to leave up and they, those are often really complicated decisions but i do think we can't ignore the fact that you know as much as there's always that risk that is very real that you know, we might have a, you know, Russian cyber attack on US critical infrastructure, we also shouldn't ignore that the kind of pernicious effects that these smaller, often minute inch by inch impacts these influence operations can have on not just an electorate, but you and I and, and how we think about things.
1: And realistically, is there is there a response? Is there a legal response? Or is it just, you manipulate us, we'll manipulate you back?
0: And That, by the way, has been kind of part of the tradition in cyberspace is that the law has been actually, for all the talk of the Taliban manual and all the negotiations at the UN, what does Iran do when it gets hit with Stuxnet? it doesn't invoke international law? It hacks US banks in response. And I think we don't know everything the US did in response to Russian interference in the election, but we do know that a lot of employees of that Russian troll farm got text messages from, you know, courtesy of the US government saying, hello there. We know this is your phone. We know what hours you work. We know who you are. Think about your travel plans and that sort of thing. So kind of a a wave and a nod to kind of suggest that, you know, your activity is not costless. The one thing I would note is because it's a horizontal system, international law has developed something called countermeasures. And so what a countermeasure is, is I can do something illegal to you because you did something illegal to me first, as long as I'm proportionate.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And so I think that's kind of where a lot of the conversation around cyberspace is right now is like what a countermeasures in cyberspace look like, because that may be the best way to hit back. If you do something that's internationally wrongful to me, that's going to open the door for me to do something in in return to you. The challenge is you're not supposed to do any of this in a way that affects human rights. And the problem is that you and I as humans are are often either witness to or involved in these cyber operations. And so that's kind of the challenge is how do you do it in a way that respects individuals' rights to privacy, freedom of expression, to say nothing of life or health?
1: What's the legal justification for this countermeasures principle? What's the law buttressing? If you do something illegal to me, I can can do something illegal back.
0: So it's actually, so there was a time when you actually had something called armed reprisals, right? There was a time pre the two world wars where when another state violated your national legal rights, you sent in the Marines. And there was a long history of kind of imperialism and colonial domination that went along with it. And states kind of finally said enough with that. But the legacy has been, okay, well, you can't use force every time international law is violated. You can only use force in self-defense, as, as we discussed. But the, there's something called the International Law Commission at the United Nations, which is a group of international experts, and they kind of worked on this, the rules on state responsibility, what are states responsible for. That's where a lot of the detail came out on attribution and, and control, the effective control test uh, and the like, and, and the debates about it. And I think you've seen them also articulate this idea of countermeasures. And states have widely accepted it over the last several decades that a state that is the victim of an internationally unlawful act has the right to respond proportionately even with unlawful acts of its own. And you see this in the trade context. You know, that's that's the most obvious context. You know, oh, you've breached the WTO uh, with respect to me, so I can breach the WTO with back at you, right? I can't do it on my own. I can't do it to begin. But once you've breached, I get a right to breach in return to raise the cost for you until you retreat from your own violation. That's the logic of it. I do think we're going to start to see a bit more of that in the cyber context, particularly if states can agree that it can be done collectively, right? Like if it's, it's not just when Chile gets hit, Chile has a right to respond with countermeasures, but can it, like you can in the armed conflict context, can you call your allies to help you? And so suddenly it's not one state responding, it's 50 states responding.
1: So Canada is hit by attack from North Korea and they team up with the United States and, you know, hypothetically, Japan to do an attack back.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. Right. So this idea that is contested Estonia, for example, has said we should have collective countermeasures. This should be allowed just like you can have collective self-defense and other states. Uh, in particular, France have said no. We don't. We think that will be um, escalatory. It will lead. It will actually make conflicts more likely. We, we're not sure that that law should go there, and so we're seeing that debate even among liberal democratic states right now.
1: Any final parting words on use of force and cybersecurity? I mean, with more and more of our lives moving online, and with more and more capabilities online, any uh, parting wisdom for us?
0: I think you know one of the lessons for me so far of the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that, you know, you can look at it as the glass is half empty or the half full. I mean, obviously it's such a blatant violation of the international legal order and the rule of law. And yet there's so many other states that have responded entirely through the legal frame that have stood up and said, you know, the rule of law matters and we are gonna take all sorts of actions to demand that it be respected. And I think you've started to see at least in some quarters that in the cyber context. So States in particular, for example, we saw a lot of hospitals being hacked uh, with ransomware during COVID. And states have, have stood up and said, no, you know, targeting of hospitals is off limits. It's critical infrastructure. It's necessary to human life. You shouldn't be hacking hospitals. That hasn't stopped it entirely, but I, it does give me a little bit of hope that there, is a, there are paths forward for states to both agree uh, more clearly or resolve some of these outstanding existential and interpretive disputes on what the law is and how it applies, and to do so in ways that that will hopefully also have some accompanying tools to monitor compliance and to take actions when states get out of line. I I mean, I have no hope in some perfect utopian world. I think there will always be rogue bad actors. You know, none of this is going to change North Korea's behavior, but I do think it can maybe hopefully help the ecosystem as a whole to kind of move from a world where I think we kind of have, we've normalized cyber insecurity over the last decade and a half, and maybe we can kind of work more towards normalizing not cyber insecurity, but normalizing cyber security itself.
1: Duncan Hollis is a cybersecurity expert and a professor at Temple University School of Law. Duncan, thanks for the time today. Oh, it was a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview... You can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.